Hi, people. We're back. This is a special edition of、uh, Black Pot Friday.、Uh, today we're recording on Labor Day. Very special for teachers because Labor Day is when the roller coaster begins.、Um, but we'll do a little generic、uh, podcast today. Today's guest is my friend, my mentor, my sister. She's taught me everything I know about、uh, racism and. And how to、uh, better myself and understand the social injustices in the world.、Uh, my good friend Anya Marin. Thanks for coming on, Anya. Thank you for having me. I'd like to correct something.、Um, I haven't taught you everything you know. <laughs> I, you know, planted some ideas and some thoughts. We've had some great discussions, and from that, you made decisions. You learned. You taught yourself. So, well, yeah, but you I, taught me to teach myself too, though, right? Like that's. That, yes, you know. I, I guess you're right, and that's a very important part of of our lives going forward. Right. So you know, if you're calling, you know, if 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 I can call myself a quote unquote woke person, then you would be the Morpheus, and、uh, I would be the Neo. <laughs> although, although I told my friends this, and and、uh, they were they were.、Uh, Calling me up on it, they said, "Oh, you're Neo now, Albert. Okay, you're you're Neo. Oh, okay." <laughs> so then I had to like check myself. Okay, no, I'm not Neo. Neo, I'm, you know. But you know what I mean. Yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> Did you watch the Matrix? Did you end up watching the Matrix? I, I didn't. Trevor, Trevor, my son. Sorry, Trevor.、Um, his, I think he was going to watch it the other night, and I forgot to follow up. But I haven't <laughs> watched it since.、Uh, since I think.、Um, Twenty when it first came out, twenty-one years ago. But, but you did watch it though. Oh yeah, yeah I okay, actually okay. watched it on my due date from with my first child. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. She's twenty-one. I was、now. feeling good.、Yeah. I was feeling good. I was like, "What am I staying home for? I'm going to the movies. Matrix is out." So yeah, that was twenty-one years ago. That was amazing. Awesome. So this episode is a Black Pod Fridays.、So、we're gonna call call this. I don't know. Pod zero. Episode zero. We'll see. Just stay tuned for what that means. But、uh, so let's get started. Okay.、Um, we like to start with our with、uh, our guest background because the African diaspora is diverse. Is it diaspora or diaspora? You know what?、Um, it's tomato tomato. So some people say、uh, diaspora、right. and some say diaspora diaspora and some diaspora, say diaspora. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it.、Yeah. I've heard it said both. So so、exactly. uh, what is your background,、uh, Anya? My background. Wow, I like that. That's really good. My.、Um, <laughs> So my parents. I was born here in 1966 in Toronto.、Uh, my parents are both from Trinidad, and they have they have interesting ethnic slash in quotation marks racial backgrounds.、Uh, so my background, of course, is African, and then、uh, there are a lot of other mixtures along the way, as is true for many many products of the diaspora of.、Uh, Colonialism and colonization, but、um, I identify as a black woman, you know. But the mixtures are are broad and and great. So there's South Asian and European and <clears throat> Aboriginal or Indigenous Caribs are indigenous to Trinidad, and of course the African component is the largest one. Right, right. But but culturally, you we a Trini. Yeah, culturally, I'm a Trini. That's right.、Yeah. Um, All right, cool. Yeah. Oh, so so you missed out on、uh, Caribana.、Oh, yes. Yeah. This year,、uh, this year. COVID, that's tough, right? I know you enjoy that every year. I do enjoy it, but I have to say I've been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to to jump up in the past, and the next big you know step is to go and enjoy enjoy Carnival in you know back in Trinidad. For the first time ever, because I had the good fortune of living there uh, briefly uh, from the time I was between the ages of ten and thirteen, but I was too young to go and participate in in the big people thing. I was I was still small. Right, right. That's perfect. See that that's the next question. So, where did you go to school? Let's start at you know kindergarten all the way up. Right, elementary to、uh, grade five. I went to school in Toronto. I started in、uh, Catholic, moved to public.、Um, a lot of it was based on where my parents could find care, babysitting, and、uh, so I moved.、Uh, not a lot, but 
um, you know, when I was little, I, I did go to Catholic schools. And then uh, by the time I was in grade two, I settled in at uh, Beverly Glen Junior Public School, which was out in Scarborough, um, you know, Warden and Finch area. And then in, at the end of grade five, 1977, uh, my father, who is a professor, a lecturing scientist at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus, he and my mom, um, who was working at the time with an um, uh, import-export company, decided that they wanted to go back home. They uh, came out to go to school back in the early 60s, 1960. They both met. So they actually met. They didn't know each other. They met in Montreal. So I'll give you a little bit of a history, their history. They both came out to go to school in 1960. My father came out after working. He came out as a as a, a more mature student because he worked to raise money to go to school. He was accepted to McGill. He came out and he did his undergrad at McGill at the age of 24 and uh, met my mom, 20. 23, 24, he came out, met my mom, who had also come out to go to school for two reasons. One, she uh, came out to go to Sir George's College. She was looking at a secretarial program at the time. Uh, back Backstory, my mother actually lost both her parents uh, within a year of each other when she was 13 years old. So she was raised by a foster family. And her foster sister, who is now really considered my aunt, was coming out to go to um, McGill as well. And my mom and my step, my mom's foster mom saw it as an opportunity for her to pursue her own um, educational dream as well as chaperone her younger foster sister. So they were out in Montreal as well at McGill and Sir George's College. And my parents met there as part of that grouping that coming together of West Indian students in Montreal. So they met in Montreal, they got married in 1965, by which time my dad had finished his undergrad and had been accepted to a master's program at U of T. So he and my mom packed up after their wedding in Trinidad and moved to Toronto. And I was born the following year, 1966, in Toronto, and we lived there until uh, 1977, when, like I said, my parents decided, you know, they had been away from home for so long, they missed home and they saw the beauties of raising black children at home in spite of some of the you know smaller issues within an island but here's an island that had you know sort of declared independence and had moved on and they were looking back um, positively longingly on a life that they they had before they left so they packed us all up and we moved to Trinidad in 1977 and my dad took a sabbatical leave here and he took a job teaching at the University of the West Indies, uh, St. Augustine campus. My mom took a job on campus as well, working in research. And uh, she was working as the office assistant and secretary administrative leader for a company that did research, botany research on campus. So they're both on the UE campus and loved it, um, but it wasn't what they remembered, sadly. It had changed so much and there were so many other issues going on. And they thought, you know what, we better come back. So they packed us all up again and they moved us back in um, August of 1980. And I came back at that time and was prepared to go back into grade nine with actually a lot of my friends whom I grew up with uh, from grade two to grade five. Even that in and of itself, when we look at our experiences as black people in the city, the first thing that um, my parents encountered in terms of that sort of systemic racism was uh, trying to get me into school at Dr. Norman Bethune Collegiate. And first of all, they said, well, no, you've come from the West Indies, so uh, you'll have to be put back a year. And my father was very adamant that I was not um, from the West Indies. I was born here, raised here, went to school here. And that time that I was away uh, would simply, you know, result in me being in grade nine if I was here and pushed for that. So they didn't have the opportunity to, to push me back here, which is what often would happen to people coming in from the West Indies or from the Caribbean. So I joined my friends at Bethune, Dr. Norman Bethune Collegiate Institute, 
And that was North Scarborough around, I guess, Warden and Steeles. And uh, had some very interesting experiences in that space as well. So that's a bit of my background. I came back here, went to high school at Bethune, and then I graduated and went to university uh, at U of T. I think I was, I think, I believe, actually, I've got to check that. I may have been the first black female valedictorian for my high school. And they were very interesting experiences along the way growing up black in Scarborough. There were some assumptions made um, about being a black child in the system. Um, many of them were that we were less than other, that we weren't able to compete or aren't, weren't as intelligent as our peers. And I think the first time I experienced that uh, was just in that for the first couple months back from Trinidad and uh, went home and pretty much said, okay, you know what, I've done a lot of this before we did it in Trinidad. And so my dad went to a grade nine orientation night, meet the, you know, meet the school and sat in the audience. And then the principal was presented to us. I remember he was R.K. Thompson, huge white guy. And in those days, a lot of the principals were big uh, white males who often, you know, had um, really interesting backgrounds. Um, they were authoritarians, right? Big, big figures. And so my dad asked, hey, you know, what, what, what programs do you have for students who require, you know, additional uh, enrichment, enhancement? And he just assumed my father was talking about support. And he said, oh, we have remediation classes. And my dad said, I'm not speaking about remediation classes. My, my daughter is finding uh, the material too, diff too easy and is getting bored in class. And he was, he was quite put off that my dad was actually inquiring about enrichment as opposed to remediation. So that was sort of the beginning of the aha. But we had experiences when I was in junior grades too, um, where the expectation was that A, my parents weren't involved or weren't aware and B, there was no way I could be as intelligent as I perhaps was presenting as. So uh, we've had, my parents have actually been very strong, very vocal. I've had to go in and, and sort of stand up for their black child to say, A, she's intelligent. B, she's correct. I vividly remember a grade two incident with uh, one of my uh, former teachers. And uh, she was telling me I was wrong. The math that I was doing was wrong. And my parents went in and said, well, no, this is the way the math works. And they, and they showed her and she said, oh, well, I, we weren't taught that way. And he said, but is she incorrect when she does this process? And she had to begrudgingly agree that, no, I wasn't incorrect. So we've had little things. We've had, you know, teachers pull us up by, you know, by our clothes because they didn't like something we said or did. And my parents have always had to go in and say, I'm not sure why you felt that was the appropriate way in which to deal with our children or having, you know, being young and walking into the convenience store, you know, how much excitement we got from the convenience store. You grew up in Toronto, Mr. Fong. <laughs> the, the convenience store was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Especially mm -hmm. the ones with the, with the video game machines. Oh, see, that's a little oh, later yeah. for us. That it was, was a little the later, video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for us, it was the, you know, the five cent candy. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And having my dad have to, you know, we came home in tears saying that, you know, the shopkeeper had accused us of stealing something. And, and in actual fact, it wasn't us. It was, you know, the kids we were in there with. And, but they physically picked us up, like literally grabbed us and, you know, pushed us out of the store. And my dad had to go back and say, you cannot touch my children. So, you know, you know, what evidence did you have? Well, uh, she was with, he's like, I don't care who she was with. You know, that child, my child didn't steal anything. So it's that constant battle of, of having to prove that you, you know, you weren't what they expected you to be, or you were not living up to or living down to, right? The standards, the expectations. Uh, my parents' experiences trying to find housing, you know, when they first came back here. Uh, we grew up with all the stories and the sad piece is, you know, that discrimination, that, that, that racism is still in effect 
for black people, black families. But my parents were questioned, how do I even know you're married? You know, when they started looking for apartments in September of 1965, until finally they found a, a really, really nice lady who actually in, in many years later, after renting to them, was really hoping that they could purchase you know, the house that she was renting, but my parents didn't have the means to do that yet. My dad was still in university. My mom was the sole provider, the sole financial supporter. So lots of stories that we've grown up with that our own experiences have, you know, sort of provided substance or evidence. Uh, but there's also uh, the sad piece of, of the fact that many, many years later, we're still seeing the same things. We're still experiencing the same, the same racism, the same discrimination. Wow, that's that was a lot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's I just for your background. I was just uh, in the bit uh, you telling us the whole life story. That's awesome. Um, thank you. And the for background that. is you're right when you talk about background because you can't separate my race from my background. You know, so yeah. that's a really good phrase. I really like that word, right? The two are oh, not. Thank you. Yeah, that's the two cannot be separated. They move hand in hand. Right. So let's go back a little bit. Um, sure. Well, a couple of quicker, quicker ones. Do you did you have any black teachers? Wow. Other than Trinidad. So in Trinidad, yeah, in Trinidad they're all black people. Oh, they're all, Trinidad, all the teachers yes. are black, right? You Almost didn't have all. white teachers? Did you have a white teacher? I did have way. a white. We had white teachers. We had South Asian, what we, we called Indian in Trinidad, but South Asian teachers. I had black teachers. I had um, Asian, East Asian, right? Chinese teachers. I mean, we had all kinds of people because over the last, you know, 300 years, the makeup of the country has changed, right? Um, the integration of slaves and indentured, indentured workers and and um, entrepreneurs who came from other countries, that has made up um, the country itself. So yeah, I had all kinds of teachers because as you said, the background is Trini. So what you'll find is when you find out that someone is Trini, that doesn't tell you their race, No. right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, someone can be a Trini and you hear that accent and you turn, the, you turn around, you know, get around the corner and you see, you can see any race of individual with that accent, with that Trini accent because there's so many different ethnic groups and races that have made up the people of the country over the last, you know, two to 300 years. So, yeah, I so have how, a well, lot compare of that, yeah. teachers. So compare that to here. So compare that to uh, Canada. Yeah. Right. Not, I don't think I had any, any non-white teachers in elementary school and in secondary school I had, I didn't personally have a black teacher, but I had a couple of South Asian teachers. And uh, I think my sister and my brother had a black teacher, but I didn't. I didn't specifically have one. I just knew they were in the school. Right. So that's right. been, you know, I've interviewed quite a few teachers, uh, black teachers specifically recently. Right. On, on uh, teachers of black people too. And uh, that seems to be the pattern. And then that was in Toronto and Scarborough specifically. That was specifically in Scarborough. Yeah, yeah which, which has a more, more of a black population than, than right. most yeah. at that time. And even in university, I think the first black prof I had was when I was in third year. And that was in my African studies course, African literature and studies course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned you were the first black female valedictorian in your high school? Yeah, I think I was. I don't think there was anyone before me. I'm going to have to check that. Um, yeah, that's... At the time, and there, there's that piece of, we didn't see those firsts all the time in the moment, right? It was just, you know, over, it was the expectation in the family that you did the best you could and you were, you were acknowledged for it. Um, but I guess if, you know, if I went back and looked at the school wasn't that old, by the way, um, when I graduated. So yeah, I'm not, I could have been potentially the first black valedictorian, male or female. Well, you're definitely the first uh, valedictorian on this podcast. You know, I, I'm very far away from you being one. You know what? <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. Here. I think, I think oh, Rachel no, no. Luke. Miss Luke. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Miss Luke. Oh, apologies to Miss Luke. No, yeah. she didn't mention it. My fault, my fault. Yeah, Miss Luke was also a valedictorian too. Um, but, but for me, for the school, our school wasn't very old. So Bethune was one of the newer schools. It opened in, 
in late 79, I believe, or mid-1979. So by the time I graduated in 85, right? Um, yeah, there weren't that many valedictorians before me. I'm not, now I'm intrigued about this valedictorian thing, that like, you know, I didn't have to be a valedictorian to become a teacher. You know what I mean? Now we have yeah, like no, no, two, I don't think you do. Two <laughs> black women having to be valedictorians to become a teacher. You know what I mean? Like, you, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Like, you have to be at least some sort of valedictorian to become a teacher. Meanwhile, there are so dude, many, like me, so many <laughs> hey, you levels. Hey, you go, you can go. Hey, bong, you can go be a teacher. But black women, you gotta have like medals and you gotta you know, work hard. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm interested, and also like even the uh, I'm intrigued by the the valedictorian selection process too. Right? So the process for me, I guess the process for my school was similar to the one that that you know school that I work in now is you know you you're recommended by teachers by staff. Uh, you do have to probably have some academic prowess, standing, good standing. You know what I mean? But you're also voted on by by your peers, and I believe that was the process for our valedictorian. Uh, selection uh, in those days. It wasn't solely marks. It was a combination of um, your grades as well as your contribution to the school. And, um, you know, the which is what peers. I'm intrigued by then, right? Like, it's we talk about gatekeepers, right? Yes. If you have to be nominated, then, you know, black students are more likely to not be nominated. Right. Exactly. Not mostly white teachers, right? I'm curious right. about it. Because at my school, is, uh, there's very little teacher involvement. Oh, it's solely students? The students put wow. them put their names in and they apply. They they have to get teachers to back them up, like to sign the letter and all that. Oh. Um, but there's another. I mean, although it sounds empowering, but I feel like the systems could have you know beaten down some some students so much that they don't feel like they would ever become one. You know what I mean? I agree. Yes. Definitely. Sometimes I would feel like you know if you have some uh, if you have teachers that are anti-racist. And they, they, they're like, no, no, this student deserves to be recognized. And they would go take the initiative to nominate a black student. Right? That would be, make it more, more likely. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm... I hear what you're saying. It's interesting that you said that because um, I agree with you, the idea that you would be beaten down so much that you wouldn't even attempt to, you wouldn't submit your name. And I think um, about two years ago, we had a joint graduation process, not this year, but the year before, because we were um, merged with Gordon Graydon um, Secondary School. And so to honor their school's graduates and ours, we shared uh, valedictorian duties. And I remember talking to the head of Spec Ed who had recommended a young um, young black man uh, had actually not only recommended, but in the end, I think he was chosen by staff and he refused. He wasn't ready to take on that role. And oh, I wow. think part of it was really hard. It was hard for him to acknowledge the successes and to be strong and, and comfortable with that role. Really, really hard. And, you know, from what she told me, it's he said, please don't let my mother know because if she knows, she'll make me do it. And I just can't do it. And it was heartbreaking to think that, you know, we couldn't have a young black man acknowledge the positive influence that he is on his peers and the positive image he created for his staff, for his teachers. So in the end, no, they didn't go with him. They ended up going with someone else. But I did um, briefly meet him. I mean, I was, you know, he was very, very quiet. We were talking after the ceremony and that's when the other teachers shared with me, yeah, he was really reluctant to take to take it. And they worked hard. They worked on him. They talked to him. They tried to get him to understand why it would be so good. And in the end, he wouldn't do it. So to, as you said, to go through the process of, of seeing uh, worth and value and recognizing that worth in yourself and putting your name forward, again, one of the things we talk about is our self-worth is so low in the eyes of everybody else. It's so hard. I, I have to say, Albert, I was very fortunate because the community surrounding me, my family, my family's friends, the extended family, uh, we were always uplifted. And as, you know, Rachel probably said, and so many others, we were always expected to be, you know, we had to be, you know, you have to do the 110, 120% just to be seen as 
worthy. And uh, it's hard when you're beaten down on a regular basis to to drum up to to pull that that value up into yourself and say, you know what, I'm des- I des- I'm deserving of this. It's really hard. Yes, uh, you were very fortunate to have come from a family of academics, and uh, to be that they were educated, they know their rights. Uh, I wonder, you know, how many families that do not have that and are unable to advocate for their children when a principal says, no, you should go in the remedial classroom, you know, like, as you said, right? Like, that's what I was thinking about when you were telling that story about how your father went in and and advocated for you. But if you don't have the education, you don't know, then you can't advocate for your children and then your children won't know and they can't, you know, it's like, it's a vicious cycle. It is. And sometimes it's not just the education because sometimes they have the education and sometimes although they have limited education, formal education, they are aware of the value of education. And so it's just how strong are you? You know, how much has your back been broken? Right. 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 So, so your father would have taken the valedictorian speech. He would have, he would have been someone who would have accepted. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right, he was strong enough to overcome. The, 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 I mean, everyone's different, right? Like how you deal with uh, the oppression. And, and Yeah. I think in Trinidad, too, when you look at, I mean, my grandfather didn't have a formal education. I think he ended, he stopped school probably at grade five. He had to, what would become, you know, similar to grade five. He just, he had to work. He had to work the land. He had to figure out a way to support family. He had to do all kinds of things. But, but to him, he knew the value of education. So every child, and my father is one of 15 brothers and sisters, <laughs> good Catholic family, my grandparents. <laughs> and um, so my grandmother, and my grandfather, you know, school was very, very important to them because they, they were unable to, to, to attain all through school. They had other responsibilities, right? So for them, every child had to get to something somewhere and do their best. And so my father was fortunate that there were people in the community, again, people at school who saw potential in him and a lot of his other sisters and brothers. I have lots of, of, of uh, teachers in the family on my father's side. And so, yeah, he, you know, he had the support and the push and my grandparents believed in it. And on my mother's side, in spite of, you know, some of the things that she went through with the loss of her parents, her grandmother you know, was, was a believer in, in making sure the family, you know, was kept strong and, and her support from her foster families was one that, you know, was there. So having that, even if the parents uh, don't have a lot of education, they still have value for it because most communities do. Right. And I think that's another misnomer and misconception is that we don't, black communities don't value education that we don't value. And it's not true. It's just, sometimes it's really hard to advocate when you too are being beaten down, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, when you've been beaten down so much, you you just almost like, what's the point, yeah, right? Like, it's and hard. It becomes, you become apathetic, right? And yeah. it's it's terrible. Yeah, we're beginning to give names to those things now. We're beginning to call it trauma and depression and all the other things that affect well-being. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to just to sort of rise above all of that when it's constantly pushing you down. So very fortunate. I was very, very fortunate to have that support between, you know, with my mother and my father. They were both real supporters. You know, they, they, they valued education. They saw the value of it. They themselves pursued post-secondary education and went on to do, you know, a lot of, of post-secondary learning. And they reinforced it at home and it was reinforced through family and friends. But this was an important, important achievement. And you had to go to post-secondary somehow. You had to go on and do something else. Let's uh, keep going with with your experience um, in in teachers' college. I remember you told me that you were involved in uh, like an African or black students uh, initiative or something. I don't remember when you were in teachers' college. In teachers' college, so you got involved in something like a like a black teachers group. Or- Oh, that's probably just, well, that was post-teacher's college. But in teacher's college, I think we had a lot of interesting discussions. I think you did too, where in, in 
at the time it was feud. It was the faculty of education at university of Toronto. That's where I did my, um, my teaching degree, my MED, sorry, my B.Ed. And I went on to do my MED at OISE UT, but the B.Ed was at Fute. And um, lots of interesting discussions had sort of come out of, and this was in 1991, starting to come out of, of other research that had been done, like um, critical race theory and race relations that had, had developed, you know, into um, studies uh, of African Canadians and African Americans and, and their success at school and, and, and the limitations and, and constraints. And when I finally got a teaching job, um, I had been, you know, fortunate enough prior to going into teacher's college, I had been volunteering with the uh, Project 90 group. And it was started in 1990 by a group called AHEN, it's the African Heritage Educators Network, and Bernice Blackman and Vernon Farrell and a number of other um, um, hardworking African heritage teachers in North York, particularly. This was in the North York board. And through family connections, um, I started working with Bernice Blackman. And she was, you know, sort of helped me, um, pointed me in that sort of direction of teaching, I think, is, is because she at the time was a teacher and then she was uh, vice principal, then she became a principal. And I worked with wonderful individuals like George and Doreen Cornelius. And these were all my mentors because they were family friends and uh, working in education. And so before I even got into teacher's college, I was volunteering every Saturday with the Project 90 group. And then continued with that while I was volu- while I was going to teacher's college, graduated from teacher's college and I couldn't get a job. And I happened to, to run into Vernon Farrell one Saturday morning when I was volunteering. And in our conversation, we started talking about something else and we got talking and, and I mentioned that I was a certified teacher and he, he was stunned. And he said, you know, you're a teacher, you actually have a teaching teaching qualification? I said, yeah. And he said, well, why aren't you working? And I said, well, I couldn't get anything at the time. So between 90, like late 80s and early to mid 90s, again, we went through that process of teachers being let go. There weren't enough teaching jobs. So it was tight coming out of teacher's college. You weren't always guaranteed something. So you kind of had to pay your dues in other ways. I think at the time I was working half days as a teaching assistant in an adult education ESL school and he was floored. So he at the time was the principal of Zion Heights um, Junior High School and said, I need you to apply. You have all the requirements. You need to apply. So he was able to, and in those days, he was able to call someone at the board and say, I know a teacher. I know she can do this job that I need. How can I get her on a list for hiring? And in those days, it wasn't as complicated. You literally call somebody you knew and you said, hey, I'm sending you know, someone uh, regulation uh, 274. That was, yeah, uh, there was no regulation. <laughs> no, it's way before that. This is 1992. Exactly. So that's how I got. So by, I think, December of that year, 92, uh, I was hired uh, as an LTO. So I did the standard, you know, two weeks or I think 10 to 14 days of supply teaching. And then I took over a position a long-term occasional position. That's how I got into into the board in North York. Very cool. Everybody has an origin story, right? Every <laughs> teacher has some sort of origin story of mm-hmm. how they got hired and whatnot. So um, now that we're getting to your teaching career, um, I like to call this uh, Black Lives Matter and the Black Experience Matters. Uh, you mm-hmm. touched on it a little bit already in terms of when you were in school, but uh, as a teacher, uh, have you faced uh, racism from students? Never overt. I think the the exposure to me was always countered. I mean, I, most kids were really good. Um, the more students get to know you, the more they realize that you don't fit their mold of what they expect from someone, right? I and mean, you know this too. When we teach our kids, they start to understand you as the individual, as the human being. So I don't think I've ever had any overt racism, or but there have been the occasional, well, how would you know this? Um, or questioning, you know, knowledge from my point or my perspective. 
but never blatantly explained through racism. It was always, oh, I didn't think you would know that, or you know, nothing really from students. Uh, from colleagues, sure, there's always that surprise when they find out that I'm a science and biology teacher. Oh, and they don't finish the O. <laughs> it's right. kind of like uh, Gord's experience when he tells them he's a math teacher. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That there's Every black teacher has, has had some sort of experience with that from adults. Mm -hmm. I find that interesting that there, there aren't that much, I guess, like you said, overtly from, from, uh, from kids. Yeah. And I wonder if, the, you know, part of it is the power dynamic, right? You do have, you know, some sort of uh, authority over, over them. And, I really believe that that's the right? reason. Yeah. And, and they know to, you know, kind of not to do that, um, you know, keep it in check, if you will. Yes, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. But I like, the, I, but I like the way you, you mentioned how, like, once you get to know the person, right? Sometimes it's the the segregation it, it, it breeds the, the the prejudice gets to breed, right? It it, it gets erased when you Definitely. actually do get to know a black person that's just like any other person. Right? I think and, that's it. Uh, I've had a couple kids like that where, in the first little while, there was tension, and I. I, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to prove to me that it wasn't racial tension, but again, not overt, right? And uh, over the course of a semester, um, seeing that child change in terms of their approach, their tone, um, their interaction with me in class, and it is rewarding to see the change and to have hopefully have made some kind of impact on them in terms of how they see my race right? Uh, it's not guaranteed, unfortunately, because, you know, they come with so many other experiences that color who they are and how they see other people. But you're just hoping that your interaction with them can sort of break some of that down or open their eyes to alternatives. What you said is interesting. You said, you've mentioned a couple of times just now how, you know, you're not sure, right? Like that's a, you know, you, why is the burden on you to have concrete proof that there's racism involved. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a type, and, and we're going to mention that, you know, the, the microaggression, right? This is the term, the new term, right? The microaggression, yes. you know, mm -hmm. racial violence, minute racial violence, like death by a thousand cuts. That's what a yes. microaggression is, right? Definitely. You constantly have to prove to other people telling you, right? It's kind of like a gaslight. That's another term, right? It's gaslighting, like telling you that what your experience, what you felt wasn't actually what happened. Right. Yes. And uh, it's it shouldn't it shouldn't the burden should not be the burden of proof, quote unquote. Right. It shouldn't be on the person experiencing oppression. Um, so if you feel like it was racism, then that that's probably what it was, because like exactly. I've learned, like I've learned through my years, even though I experienced some racism, but not the anti black kind. Right. But I've seen it. And as a kid, I didn't know what it was, but I remember feeling funny about it. Yes. When I, when I like I, it would we play in my head, I'll be like, something is wrong about that interaction. Exactly. But I, you know, I wasn't born here. I, don't, I didn't know about the white black dynamic, all, all of that. You mm -hmm. know, once when, when I immigrated here, right? But I, they they stuck in my head like a few episodes in my in my mind, right? And now that I've learned about it, now no, now I realize that those were those were racist injustices that I witnessed. Yes. That was that was improper, incorrect, unjust, what have you, right? And I told I told Jason Bradshaw about this, and he said I had like. Maybe, Albert, maybe you have some sort of racism spidey sense. <laughs> <laughs> Which right? we Mr. have. Comic book, right? Mr. Yes. Comic book. Well, yeah. well, 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 if anybody that has it, it's black people, right? Because yeah, totally they experience have. all the time, right? Yeah. So to tell a black person that 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 wasn't racism is racism. You know what exactly. I mean? <laughs> That's exactly. You know what? It's so true. It is like a spidey sense. And you wait. And, and so what op op often happens is I wait for... Because you can see it. You can see the emotion on their face. You can see the buildup and you can wait for it. You could count, you know, five, four, three, two, here comes, one, yeah, and here yeah. it comes. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, really, that was because, and so my interactions with administrators with respect to my concerns about the well-being of a child and how that particular um, racist uh, interaction, you know, played out. Well, you know, maybe they were just having a bad day. Mm, no, this is what happened, and this is why I know what this is. But you're right; it, um, but it also becomes draining 
uh, to have to counter that all the time. Oh, so there on. are that, times. That's the next segment. That's the next segment. Don't worry. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's perfect. So, so that's, I, so I was just saying, that's the reason you, you almost say, well, maybe it was, you know. Right, right. So you're the inspiration of, for, for this segment, we, and we call this How Tired Are You? Right? So I love it. How tired are you, Anya? And that, that would be for the microaggressions, right? The death by a thousand cuts. So one thing I, I want to bring out uh, and, and have you uh, explain to us was uh, when, uh, when the principal told you that uh, she didn't see color. Oh, Why is that no. a microaggression? Oh my goodness. So, so just to, to clear up, I, these are new terms for me as well. Gaslighting, microaggression, code switching. And the thing but is, these are all like academic terms, right? Exactly. Like you already know and what it is and not the academics have put like researched and put a name to it. That's right? right. And sometimes they're not even, you know, they're, they're, they're academic for this time in the moment. Yeah. And that phrase yeah. and changes. Nice. I feel like some of it's too nice. You know? Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's racial yeah. violence. That's what it yeah, is. That's what it is. Right? But we're going to give it a nice little name. So it's almost, it's almost, you know, it's hidden. It's, it's covert, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Exactly. So yeah. along with so many other interactions, oh my gosh, Albert, there are so many um, times where I had to stop someone and say, let's revisit what you just said. And from the time I started teaching, um, to, you know, the experience with a former principal, but the former principal experience was actually, it was, although revealing and a good discussion, it was slightly refreshing because at that moment, it was one of those instances where the individual themselves had their own aha moment and didn't just dismiss what I saw. So I'll give you the story and then we'll go back to some of the other cases where people completely dismiss what you say. But I had just started working at a school and I, the principal was retiring. And so within the first two years of working with, with her, you know, I got to know her well and um, I really appreciated how much she loved the students in the building. And so I got along fairly well with her. And I remember they were holding a little staff party for her. And I sat down at the party and the breakfast. So we had a little staff breakfast in the cafeteria. And after I happened to be walking past her room and she called me and she said, Anya, come in a second. I just want to ask you a couple questions. And I said, okay. And she said, I noticed when I walked into the staff party, this the staff breakfast this morning, you were sitting at a table with, you know, almost all black people, you know, you know, was there a problem? Is there something that was going on? And I said, okay, I want you to think about this. When you walked into the cafeteria, did you, noticed, did you notice that the other 20 tables were full of white teachers? Now, why is it that I struck you or our table of non-white teachers stood out? Because it wasn't just black teachers. There were Asian teachers at the table, a Middle Eastern teacher, South Asian teacher. So we were quite a mixture. And she said, oh, so because I sort of checked her on it right away, What's the standard response? Oh, well, I don't see color. I said, then how did you see me sitting at that table? I said, well, I, I don't see color. Uh, and I said, no, we all see color. So when you tell me you don't see color, you deny who I am, the experiences that I have that I bring to who I am, right? So denying my blackness, not seeing color negates a portion of me that contributes to who I am, to the reason that you like me as a teacher, as a contributor in this building. And uh, she had an aha moment. She said, oh my goodness, it's like, uh, say, I travel to another part of the world where there wasn't anyone like me. I said, yeah, you think they don't see your color? Of course they see your color. We all see color. It's part of how we navigate the world. Now, if you don't allow what you see to interfere with or affect the way you treat people, well, that's completely different. But don't tell me you don't see it. And so to have her actually, you know, have that sort of aha moment was refreshing because normally you get stopped at that point where you say, the person says, I don't see color, and then the conversation ends. So it was really, really nice to sort of have her move past that point and really examine why we don't see color. Well, we, we, it's uncomfortable for us to acknowledge that we see it because we don't want that other person thinking how we think or what we think 
about them because of color, but you can't separate my color from who I am. It sounds like the, the principal that you were talking to was humble in, in her own learning in, yes. uh, in race, right? Like she was the one that hired you often. in the first place, right? Yeah, she hired me. She, That's right. She hired you to push you to be a department head and yeah. all of that. So she, she, she was trying to be an advocate and, and, and I worked with her as well. She was always an advocate for black students, especially and and, you know, cause she, she coached with me in basketball and, uh, I could totally see her doing that. She's just like in a moment of, of, of learning, she does not, uh, she did not, uh, center herself uh, and her guilt and her and, and her feeling bad right and that's what happens when when uh, people will say i don't see color in any conversation because right. they don't want to have to deal with the bad feeling associated right. with, yeah with she didn't dig in her that. heels you're right she no, didn't dig in right? her heels and that's so important that, that, that i'm learning recently that you know it's you know it, it, it's not about the individual it's not about you right it, it's what you're contributing to the oppression and the, the more we can humble ourselves and realize, yeah, man, like that was racist. I'm sorry. Like I'll, I'll do better, you know, like, and that's yes. really basically what black people are asking for, you know, like, right. Admit and that's it what she and, said. And, and be better. Right. Like yeah. that, that, that's it. You can't undo. No, nobody's asking you to undo slavery, no. but not, how do we move simply, forward? How do exactly, we do better? You, you can't, you know, deal with your own feelings of guilt. Then there's no moving forward. Right. And, and that's, that's the battle. Right. That is, that is, and that is a huge battle, Albert, huge battle. And it's really hard for people, all of us, uh, after reading Dr. Kendi's book on how to be an anti-racist, there were so many pieces in there that I thought I sort of had a, oh my goodness, he's right. I can't think about this that way. So it is, it's a battle. It's a battle with yourself, right? It's a battle with what's known and what's unknown. It's a battle with the fear of what happens when you change those thoughts or what happens if others change or don't change those thoughts? So there's always that battle. You are so right. All right. Maybe a couple more and then we'll wrap up. Okay. <laughs> um, you're always very open to discussing race, especially, you know, with me, as I mentioned earlier. Now, is it, you know, and, and some teachers, some black teachers specifically, or, or people, uh, find it difficult to discuss race with, with colleagues in education. Now, you don't seem to have, do, do you find difficulty in doing that when, when you're doing it? I don't have any problem talking about race as long as the individual is open to having the discussion. But I've reached a point in my life now when I recognize it's time to move on from that individual because they're not ready. They're not ready to turn the corner. They're not ready to have that humbling moment, as you said. And so, no, I will never shy away from discussing race with someone who really wants to truly have an open discussion, not just to counter me, not just to question me, not just to show that I'm wrong, but to say, hey, you know what? I, I really don't understand this. Why do you feel this way? I'm happy to have that discussion. But what I've learned over the last few years is it is a waste of time to have that with discussion with someone when really all they're trying to do is prove why they're right and why you're wrong. And it's not a discussion in that sense. They're just sort of waiting for you to say something that they can sort of trip you up over or, or you know, counter it with their own personal experiences. We call it getting a cookie. Get a cookie from the black person, right? Like, oh, look, they agree with me, right? Sometimes that's why they want to engage. Exactly. Just tell me that I'm good. Tell me I'm not racist. Tell me it's okay. Tell me everything I'm doing is right. It's like, I'm not even doing all the right things. We all have to stop and question and look at our actions and see what is behind the action? Because sometimes subconsciously there are things there affecting the way we approach, you know, our children, our colleagues, right? Our students, whoever, but be open to it. So I, I sort of choose my battles carefully sometimes because, you know, as you said before, how tired are you? Yeah, that's part of the oppression, I feel like. You no, know, mm -hmm. you have to do the work. When, 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 when the, it's the system that's created racism, why are the oppressed charged with the responsibility of breaking the, the unjust system. But I guess that's just the way the system was designed. Exactly. Someone else said the other day, it's not the duty of the oppressed to be considerate of the feelings of the oppressors. <laughs> and I really like that. Absolutely. I wrote that down. And I think that's part of, of choosing your discussion because there's a lot of work. There's a lot of hard work to be done, but I don't think that work should be wasted on people who aren't ready to move, right? Their feet aren't firmly planted 
in, you know, when their feet aren't firmly planted in those beliefs that need to change, then you can move forward, right? When they're willing to budge a little bit and to listen. Yeah. So yeah, it is interesting, but there are some times when you can't, uh, you can state what you have to state and then you have to move on. Uh, I've, I've, I remember that conversation, still remember it vividly back in the days of, um, there are two incidents, um, early nineties, uh, there was a shooting, uh, at a place called just desserts that killed a young Greek woman and, uh, some black, I think two or three young black men had actually broken into sort of, you know, gone in to rob the place and ended up killing her. And I remember vividly, it was my first or second year of teaching. So 93 or 94 and having a white colleague say to me, you know, you guys should be teaching your children, you know, the black children, you should be teaching black children not to kill, not to, to, you know, get engaged and get a, become a part of this gun violence. And I said, how is it my responsibility to address the behaviors of individuals? I don't know. I said, are you responsible for, you know, stopping, you know, Carla Hamalka and Paul Minardo from murdering young black, young white girls? I mean, I just, or does it matter? You know, and she what did they say? What they say? That's the perfect comeback. What did they right? say? Nothing. It was just, <laughs> that's different. Of course. What is it? Well, that's a different case. That's a different situation. Those two are sick, right? And we, we always, they always have some justification for the behaviors. And I said, so you can justify. And I said, and yet you don't hold yourself responsible for the behaviors of those two white individuals, but I must hold myself responsible for the behaviors of young black people because we share a skin color but you don't share anything in common with those others. So that's where you, they're not ready to move, right? Their feet are firmly planted in the, in that belief and you're not going anywhere with that conversation. So all you can do is counter, right? With something like that. Maybe, maybe it's food for thought for them later when they're ready, but in the moment, it's a waste of time. Yeah, you plant a seed. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully when the, when the rain comes, the, the seed will sprout kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you hope, right? Well, speaking of moving forward, the uh, exciting news. Uh, I spent the, a lot of August contemplating what to do with uh, the podcast, what I want to do with it. I've uh, heard some feedback from different people. Uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Many, many people have said I should keep going. And uh, only one person I, I really want to talk about uh, Black issues is my friend, my, my mentor, Anya. So the, the announcement here is that we will continue Black Pot Fridays with my new co-host, Ms. Anya Marin, and we will try to delve into issues of the day um, from an educator's point of view, someone with uh, 30 years experience in education and being Black for uh, all of her life, obviously. <laughs> yes. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have a good time and it's an excuse for me uh, to chat with my friend. Oh, I, thank you. I am humbled and honored. Uh, I love what you're doing with this. And yes, you definitely need to. I told you, you need to continue with it. It's amazing. And uh, I love the opportunity you've given me to, to help, you know, help you with or work with and have discussions around all the things. Because I mean, you and I talk about, we don't just talk about race. Uh, I think people need to understand that as well. Uh, although race is central to who we are and, and how life treats us and where we go, all other things affect us too. And, and we have, you know, thoughts on how we deal with those things. And we've had great discussions about all kinds of things. So thank you. I am honored. And yes, I accept the invitation to work with you on this. This is just brilliant. I love it. Fantastic. I'll uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.